Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Shortly before noon, on Wednesday, February 26, 1947, the Vancouver Police Department received an anonymous tip that the Royal Bank at Renfrew and First Avenue was about to be robbed. Constable William Smith was the first to arrive at the branch, and when the three would-be robbers saw his police car, they aborted the hold-up and took off with Smith in pursuit. The car chase tore through the streets of East Vancouver. At one point, Smith caught up and tried to ram the speeding car with his police car. But the robbers drove up on the sidewalk and got away. By this time, other police cars were closing in on the area and the three men dumped the stolen car at Kitchener and Nanaimo and fled on foot through the Lord Nelson Elementary School grounds. Detective Sergeant Percy Hoare and his partner Detective George Kitson were in radio car 29 going 65 miles an hour in the wrong direction when they received the call that the stolen car had been abandoned in the 2300 block Kitchener Street. Even so, they were the first to reach the stolen car. Kitson got out and stayed with the car while Hoare rushed towards the school joining three other police prowler cars that had moved in on the neighbourhood. 12-year-old Arnold Montgomery was on his way to his grade 6 class with his friends Jimmy and Norman when they saw three older teens walking towards the Great Northern Roundhouse at Clark Drive in Grandview. When the boys were stopped and questioned by Detective Hoare, they gave him a description of the young men. Hoare told them to get in the police car and see if he could point them out. Arnold jumped in, but his friends didn't want to be seen in a cop car. As Hoare and Arnold drove down Charles Street, Hoare saw three men walking about a block from Clark Drive, heading towards the False Creek Flats. One had a white package under his arm, and another was wearing red. He later said, There was absolutely nothing suspicious about their actions. They never looked around and never hurried. I was not particularly suspicious, but there was that red sweater and the white parcel had caught my interest. Hoare met up with Detective Charles Geish and they decided that Geish would go on foot along the CNR tracks and get behind them while Hoare would continue along Clark Drive to the roundhouse. By the time Hoare arrived, Officers Charles Boys and Oliver Lettingham had already left their car and were heading to the spur track to try and intercept the young men. Hoare told Arnold to stay in the car and he went to join the two officers. Hoare saw officers Lettingham and Boys catch up to the three suspects and Lettingham took out his badge. The boys stopped and looked, but showed no signs of trouble. The three young men and the two officers turned and started making their way towards Hoare. Hoare asked one of the young men his name, but received no reply. Then he addressed all three. Who are you three fellows anyway, he asked. Then the wind blew open one of the boys' coats and Hoare saw the butt of a handgun sticking out of his black overalls. The detective reached down and pulled out a fully loaded 38 caliber revolver from 17-year-old William Henderson. 
Before the officers could search the young men, all hell broke loose. The three teens took off in different directions and Harry Meadows and Doug Carter started firing. Meadows shot Officer Boys through the heart before the officer had time to fire his own weapon. Lettingham managed to get off one shot before he took a bullet to the chest. Carter fired six rounds, hitting Hoare in the leg. Hoare fell to the ground face first as a shot narrowly missed his head. As Hoare tried to reach his hand into his shoulder holster to get his gun, Meadows fired another shot through his left shoulder. Later, Hoare said, There were several shots fired in quick succession. I knew they meant to kill us. Hoare pulled himself up into a sitting position and could see Meadows and Carter running in different directions. The left-handed officer took his gun in his uninjured right hand, aimed and hit Carter in the leg. Carter got up and started to run away, and Hoare fired again, this time bringing him down permanently. Next, Hoare took aim at Midos and hit him in the leg. Midos fell to the ground, but was able to get up again and continue on. Henderson joined Midos and they ran through the False Creek Flats, trying to lose police in the maze of boxcars and shunting locomotives. Geish was still quite a distance away when he heard shots fired. He ran to the top of the dump to try and head off the boys. By this time, more constables joined in the chase. Another officer arrived to find Lettingham lying face down with a gun still in his right hand. He could see Officer Boys lying across the tracks. Detective Hoare was propped up against a pile of steel plates with his gun in his hand. Carter's body lay to his right. The officer ran back to the police car and radioed for an ambulance and extra help. Meadows and Henderson ran down a gully through thick, heavy mud and continued west along False Creek Flats and up to Fifth Avenue. Three female employees from Custom Packers saw the teens come over the crest of a hill from the False Creek Flats. Meadows waved his gun at them. As they ran around the corner of the building, Meadows unsuccessfully tried to break into a locked car and then came across an unlocked United Delivery Company truck. The truck belonged to Marcel Chapitel, a farmer from Lulu Island. He was with his 16-year-old son, Andrew, and they were making a house delivery in the area. When Andrew looked out the window, he saw someone trying to steal their truck and yelled for his dad. Chapitel ran outside, pulled open the door, asked the white-faced, bleeding young man what the hell he thought he was doing, and told him to get out of his truck. Midos pointed his gun at the farmer and told him that if he didn't help him start the truck, he'd blow his brains out. Instead of answering, Chapitel jammed the door in his face and ran around to the back of the truck. He could see Henderson standing across the street and holding the gun against his hip. Chapitel ran, yelling for a phone. Midos got out of the truck, and he and Henderson ran through a vacant lot towards 6th Avenue. Detective Charles Geish was the first officer to reach the truck. He looked inside and could see that the front seat was saturated in blood. Chapitel showed him the way the two teens had gone, and they came across a brown tweed jacket, matching pants, brown hat and blue shirt that had been tossed in some bushes in the vacant lot. They followed a trail of blood to the back of 647 East 6th Avenue, and Geish kicked in the door to the basement. He found Henderson hiding behind the chimney. He had tried to disguise his appearance by changing from the green sweater he wore for the robbery into a white sweatshirt. 
Henderson put his hands over his head and told the detective not to shoot, that he'd come out. Detective Geish searched him and found he wasn't carrying a gun. By this time, other officers had reached the house and found Midos still wearing his red sweater, slumped down unconscious and bleeding in a dark corner of the basement. There was blood on the floor and a nickel-plated Ivor Johnson revolver rolled up in a bundle of clothing. Police also found Henderson's discarded green sweater with a pocket full of extra ammunition for his Smith and Wesson and a brown silk stocking that he'd planned to use in the bank holdup. Henderson told the detectives that they couldn't put the blame on him for shooting the police officer because Detective Hoare had taken the gun away from him before the shooting started. Detective Inspector Gordon Ambrose and Superintendent Charles Spence of the CIB arrived at the Great Northern Roundhouse on False Creek Flats just as the body of Officer Lettingham was being placed on a stretcher. They found a 32 caliber Colt police-issue service revolver and noted that it contained four live rounds and one empty shell case. A second ambulance arrived and attendants lifted the body of Officer Boys onto a stretcher. Ambrose picked up a second revolver from under his body, a 38 calibre H&R revolver containing five live rounds. The gun had not been fired. The officers could see the body of 18-year-old Douglas Eldon Carter lying face up by a cement post. Next to his body was a Colt Frontier six-shooter. Every bullet had been fired. More than 100,000 people stood 10 deep along Brad and Georgia Streets in downtown Vancouver for the funeral of Constables Boys and Lettingham, which was held at St Andrew's Wesley Church. English-born Charles Boys, 38, had studied mechanical engineering at university and then served in the British Army in India for seven years before arriving in Vancouver in 1934. He joined the police force the following year and had recently been promoted. George Oliver Lettingham, 39, was from Ontario and joined the police force in 1935. Just a few weeks before, he and Boyce had received letters from the new chief of police, Walter Mulligan, commending them on their work in cleaning up a gang of teenage housebreakers. Officers Boyce and Lettingham had been partners in Prowler car duty for a month. They were noted as outstanding young officers and both said their major interests were work and family. The murdered officers might have survived, said Chief Walter Mulligan, if they'd frisked the teens for weapons when they first approached them. But in 1947, there was little training. Officers were given a badge and a gun and sent out on the streets. After their deaths, Chief Mulligan established a training program for police officers through the RCMP's training facilities in Regina and made it police policy to search anyone suspected of a criminal offence. At 43, Chief Walter Mulligan was the youngest police chief in the history of the Vancouver Police Department. Just two days before the shooting, he told reporters that the gloves were off in a war against city crime. Clearly, he was deluded. Over the next 48 hours, as well as the murder of the two policemen, Vancouver experienced seven burglaries, two hold-ups, two attempted robberies and 19 thefts. It was imperative that Mulligan sought out the shooting at False Creek Flats as soon as possible. 
And that's where Inspector John Vance came in. Vance would need to determine who fired the weapons that killed three men and wounded two others. In short, Vance would have to unravel the mess. After the gunfight was over, the bodies taken to the morgue, others to hospital, and all of the evidence, including the guns, bullets, the bloodstained cushion from the truck, and the clothes, was sent to Vance's lab for analysis. When a gun is fired, small particles of lead and other elements from the cartridge fly out onto the skin and clothing of the person holding the gun. The first thing Vance needed to do was to examine the hands of those involved for gunshot residue, because one of the most important aspects of the trial, at least for 17-year-old William Henderson, would hinge on whether he took part in the shooting. Detective Hoare testified that he'd taken the gun from the teen before the shooting started, but several witnesses, including Chapitel, the driver of the van, swore that they'd seen Henderson with a gun. When Vance swabbed Henderson's hands at police headquarters, he found no traces of gunpowder, corroborating the boy's story that he had not fired a gun that day. At Vancouver General Hospital, Vance swabbed Metis's hands and found his right hand tested positively for nitrates, indicating that he had recently fired a gun. When Vance examined the hands of Carter in the morgue, both tested positive for nitrates, indicating he had also fired a gun. The right hand of Officer Ledenham had nitrate traces, which confirmed that he was able to get off a shot before he died. There were no traces of nitrates on the hands of Officer Boys. That indicated to Vance that he'd been able to draw his weapon but not get off a shot before he was killed. In the lab, Vance examined the clothes that the teens were wearing at the time of the shooting and those taken from the house on 6th Avenue where they'd been apprehended. Vance also examined the clothing of the two dead police officers. He didn't find any powder marks or burns on their bodies and the clothing showed no indications of powder. It meant that the guns that had killed them had not been fired at close range. Vance took the guns and the bullets to a miniature firing range in his lab. He placed a sheet of paper in front of several heavy layers of felt and fired the bullet into a collection device. As Vance explained, no two guns are exactly the same, even when they're manufactured in the same plant and on the same machine. This is Vance's actual words, but obviously not his voice. The grooves and lands of the bore are different. In the manufacturing process, the drill that is used to produce the bore never leaves exactly the same impression. The revolving drill always leaves a different scratch, or stops at a different point, and this impression is transferred to the bullet as it whirls through the bore. We have instruments so exact that we can tell by examining the spent shells whether the bullets were fired from a certain gun. Vance examined the police-issued 38 calibre H&R revolver that was taken from the holster of Officer Boys and confirmed that it had not been fired. He fired test bullets from the other revolvers and then compared them to the spent bullets found at the crime scene using a comparison microscope. He examined the 38 calibre bullets taken out of Carter's right buttock and chest and noted that both were fired from Hoare's Colt 38 calibre Army Special. The bullets removed from the bodies of Lettingham and Boys came from the Ivor Johnson 38 revolver that belonged to Meadows. The bullets taken out of Hall's leg and shoulder were both from a Colt Frontier model revolver that Carter was holding when he died. 
Harry Meadows and Bill Henderson were jointly charged in the murder of the two police officers, although both boys would be tried separately. The recently deceased 18-year-old Douglas Eldon Carter had a wife and five-month-old baby. He had worked as a casual labourer for a lumber company for the previous two years. His wife Helen had kicked Doug out of the house because of the shady company he'd been keeping. Doug's mother, Mae Carter, said she was glad her son was dead. She told a reporter, I'd rather jump into the inlet and die than see my boy face trial for murder. There are crooks on the loose in this town who've been in and out of jail and never go straight, and all they do is teach younger lads their evil ways. It was only recently that Doug started going around with them. He was never in trouble with police before. Police had also picked up a young truck driver the day after the shooting named William Fats Robertson and held him on bail as a material witness. Robertson said he had met Meadows and Carter the day before the shooting to plan the robbery and the next morning they all met for breakfast at the Aristocratic Café on Kingsway. Later investigation revealed that Robertson, who was suspected in several other robberies, was the anonymous caller who had tipped police off before the bank hold-up. The four boys usually worked together, and because Robertson had felt left out, he'd phoned the police to get back at them. Police said the boys arrested after the shooting were part of a lower mainland gang operation responsible for at least four recent bank hold-ups, including the armed hold-up of the BC Electric car barn on Main Street that netted thieves $1,200 in January and $4,400 from the Bank of Commerce the previous December. Meadows was suspected in the hold-up of the Dexter Telephone Exchange and a new Westminster bank several weeks before, and police had circulated a description of him. By 1947, youth or hoodlum gangs, as they were known, had become a huge problem for police. The gangs were comprised of between 20 and 30 young men, and their average age was 18, although some were as young as 12. The boys were good at steering clear of police, members were rarely identified, and the crimes were becoming more serious. The day after the False Creek flat shooting, the province newspaper ran a front-page story with the headline, New Fagan Hinted City Gang Leader. According to the story, a mentally twisted modern Fagan, that was a quote from the newspaper, by the way, was training kids as young as 15 to shoot, become expert gunmen, and stage bank holdups and other robberies. The District News, published by Military Headquarters BC, reported that large numbers of guns and supplies of ammunition had been stolen from military depots and shops. In recent weeks, a drill hall at New Westminster, a depot in North Vancouver, and the Seaforth Camp Reserve Army Huts had been broken into and reported weapons stolen. Some of the weapons had reappeared at robberies in the possession of teen bandits. Police believed that an organised crime ring was recruiting boys and training them in crime so they could carry out the armoury robberies and then turning around and using the stolen guns in robberies around the Lower Mainland. Meadows' live-in girlfriend, 23-year-old Mary Magdalene Peterson, was a key witness for the prosecution in his trial. She'd met Harry Meadows just six weeks before the shooting 
at a lodge on Vancouver Island where she was working. He told her he was a bond salesman named Harry Johnson and was there to cool off. When he left to go back to Vancouver, she went with him. And at the time of the shootings, they were living in a room at the Barad Hotel on Richards Street. He eventually told her his business wasn't bond selling. Mary Peterson told reporters that at least 30 members of the gang that Harry belonged to were out to get her. Chief Mulligan said he would give her full police protection. Mary testified that on the night before the shootings, William Henderson, Doug Carter and William Fats Robertson came to their room and they all went to Evans Products Sawmill where Robertson and Carter had worked on a fuel truck. She said that Meadows and Henderson were kidding with Carter and Robertson about a bank hold-up. She said she didn't remember who mentioned the hold-up. This is her court testimony, but obviously not her voice. I thought a lot of Harry. I didn't want to accuse him of anything I was not sure of. And I asked him if he really would hold up a bank. He said, if I don't tell you anything, you won't know anything. The following day, she took Harry's brown suit and a blue shirt to a prearranged meeting at Clark and Venables. Meadows was wearing blue denim overalls, plaid shirt and a red jacket. Mary gave him the parcel and he told her to go straight home on the next streetcar and wait there for him. Meadows was originally from Winnipeg had a grade 9 education, worked as a labourer and had only been out of Ocala Prison Farm for two months before the robbery. He'd served a year there for auto theft and then had his sentence extended for another nine months after he escaped from jail during a transfer to the prison hospital. He was captured two days later by an alert guard who said he recognised his walk. Judge Alex Manson presided over Metis's trial. He told the jury that there was no chance of manslaughter the shooting was cold-blooded murder, and it would be murder or nothing. The jury deliberated for 37 minutes before finding Midos guilty. He was sentenced to hang. Midos, now 20 years old, lost his appeal. An hour before his execution, he told a guard on death row that he had a headache and wanted an aspirin. When the guard left to get him some medication, Midos took out a razor blade that he'd stashed under his mattress and slashed his wrists. Finding him barely alive, the prison doctor revived him, bandaged him up and declared him fit for a 6am execution. In his green tweed sport coat, shirt and tartan tie, baby-faced William Henderson looked like he'd just stepped out of a high school classroom. Even before his trial started, the Crown was telling reporters that they were considering applying to the Attorney-General to reduce his charge from murder to one of accessory after the fact. Henderson was convicted of murder and sentenced to hang, but the sentence was overturned on appeal. In the end, he was acquitted of the murder and received five years for possession of a firearm. Detective Sergeant Percy Hoare retired from the police department almost two years to the day after the shooting and went to work in the security department of BC Electric. In 1992, 43 years after the shooting, the 85-year-old retired detective received a commendation for courage in the line of fire. The shots that brought down two of the robbers at False Creek Flats weren't lucky ones. Hall was one of a small group of police officers who started the Vancouver Police Shooters Club and met once a week at the Stanley Park Armoury. 
Steve Sweeney retired from his job as Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department in 2010. He was at the ceremony honouring Percy Hoare back in 1992, and he kindly came on the show to talk about Detective Hoare's heroism and what measures have been put in place to ensure that what happened to Lettingham and Boys in 1947 wouldn't happen again. When did you first hear about it? You must have heard about it on the job. Oh, my God, yeah, I've heard about this. Probably very early in my career, I'd heard about a number of the fatalities that involved uh, Vancouver police officers. I was fortunate in my career. We only had a couple. One was a traffic accident, one was a shooting. But in the 30 years I spent with the Vancouver police, it was thankfully a, a rare occurrence. You know, back then, police officers, they kept their guns in flapped holsters, almost out of sight. They were very driven by appearances rather than responses. It was a different era. It's extremely unfortunate. Today, if they'd both been shot in the chest like that, they would have survived because frontline officers are wearing bullets vests, so they're better equipped to deal with these types of situations. It can happen in a heartbeat. That's one of the problems is that what seems like an innocuous situation at first can go sideways on you very quickly. Most police officers develop a spidey sense as well, and they feel when something is askew or amiss and can um, amp up their response accordingly. So if the bank robbery scenario that happened in 1947 happened today, how would police react? Number one is that there was a a little bit of a lackadaisical approach toward the three suspects. I know that Detective Horror wasn't certain that they were involved at all. You know, there was a couple things that triggered him, but he sort of approached them fairly casually. And then, of course, once the gun was sighted, that changes the entire scenario. Back in that era, the weapons that police officers carried weren't the same, and they were kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality, whereas now I think because there's such a proliferation of weapons on the street, our officers are at the ready much sooner than they would be back in that era. I'm curious about Percy Hoare. I mean, this guy was shot twice and left-handed and had to shoot with his right hand. What do you make of that? I think every once in a while there are people who have an ability to slow things down in their mind and not overreact. And I, I know he was a sports shooter as well, but in the recountings I've read, took very deliberate aim. I know a lot of people in those circumstances would just keep squeezing the trigger as quickly as they could. And it sounds like he was able to really keep his wits about him, take deliberate aim, make sure that every shot was counted. And really, it's an amazing testament to his personality. When I was researching this story, I became a bit obsessed with William Fats Robertson. You'll remember that he was a 17-year-old who phoned in the anonymous tip to police because he was upset about being left out of the bank robbery. Well, lucky for him, because two of them died, and the third went to jail for five years. I couldn't find out what happened to William Henderson after he served his sentence, but Fats Robertson went on to make quite a name for himself. In the early 1960s, Robertson made headlines when he tried to turn the wigwam in at Indian Arm into a casino for millionaires. The police caught wind of it and two boatloads of RCMP officers busted the old resort and uncovered an illegal gambling operation as well as plates for printing counterfeit money. Robertson and his partner, Rocky Myers, who unsuccessfully tried to bribe an RCMP officer, received six years in prison. In 1972, 
Robertson lost his trading privileges on the Vancouver Stock Exchange for manipulating the share price of two junior mining companies. He was back in the headlines six years later when he was caught heading up a major drug smuggling ring. Police seized over $4 million worth of cocaine and Robertson was sentenced to 20 years in jail. Several key witnesses were given money to relocate and forge new identities. Robertson was out in 10 years and had his trading privileges reinstated. In 2003, he was back in the news when a former insurance salesman from West Vancouver, who moonlighted as a hitman, said Robertson had contracted his services for two murders in 1969. Thanks so much for listening. I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge all 16 of the officers who were killed on the job in Vancouver between 1912 and 1987. If you are listening to this and live in Vancouver or are planning a visit, drop by the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives and check out their display on fallen officers. Thank you to Steve Sweeney for giving me his time, to Matt Walton and Mark Dunn and Megan Dunn for letting me borrow their voices, and to Richard Barrow, who kindly gave me advice on guns, which I've incorporated into the script. This is Eve Lazarus, and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. <laughs>